On my fishing trip the past few days, we parked several times at Freeport Beach on Lake Erie. So let's say that this summer you spend a day at Freeport Beach with your family to enjoy some sunshine, some swimming, and a picnic. And while you're there, some frat guys are drinking and getting drunk at 10.30 in the morning. You step on a broken glass bottle and get a nasty gash on your foot. Someone's dog steals your sandwich and pees on your picnic basket. The drunk frat guys build a fire too close to your, to your towel and, and uh, the breeze blows some smoke in your face and, and then some embers onto your towels. Some kids throw rocks at you when you're swimming. Their parents don't seem to mind. Several people are floating on inflatables and waves push them right into you, knock right into your head. Some guys... Uh, Some guy backs up with a motorboat right onto the beach and launches his boat in the designated fishing area. Some people beside you insist on using consistent foul language. Two of the drunk frat frat boys get into a fist fight, and one is hauled off in an ambulance and the other in a police car. Some, Some idiot argues with the lifeguard, ignores the lifeguard, swims outside the designated swimming area, and eventually is rescued by the lifeguard because the waves tossed him into the rocks. An obnoxious fisherman uh, begins casting and floating his line right by where you're swimming in the marked and designated swimming area. And a landscaping company out of nowhere shows up on the beach and starts stealing big rocks from the beach. And this is only, folks, in the first hour of you being there. Now, does that sound like a, a really great day at the beach? A relaxing a, a day at the beach? Well, memorable, certainly, but probably not too enjoyable. I saw this big sign by the parking lot which says, Freeport Beach Regulations. No alcoholic beverages, no glass on beach, no pets on beach, no fires on beach, no throwing sand or rocks, no inflatables, no motorized craft launch in marked areas, no foul language or profanity, no fighting or roughhousing, swim in marked area only, obey lifeguards at all times, no fishing in marked areas, no removal of sand or rocks, no, 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 welcome to the beach, no. Quite a bit of law, quite a bit of law. Why would they put so many no's at a public beach? People don't like to be told what they they can do and what they can't do. You know, don't do these things. But think about how different your day at Freeport Beach would, would have been when people honor the regulations. No drunk frat guys. No gash on your foot. No dog peeing on your picnic basket. You get the idea. When your day is ruined because others break regulations, well, then the regulations are reasonable, they are good, uh, and, and you love them, quite frankly. You're glad the regulations are there. When regulations benefit us, we love them. But when they interfere with our plans or make our day at the beach inconvenient, how quickly we disregard regulations and others around us in order to do what we please. Oops, all we brought is Evian glass water bottles. It's hot and we need to drink. 
Oh, I don't think anyone will mind if Sparky comes and plays on the beach. He's friendly, and we'll, we'll keep him close. We can't leave him in the hot car. The kids, they brought their in, inflatables. You know, you don't want to disappoint the kids or grandkids. Our instinct is to expect others to obey regulations when it pertains to our safety and enjoyment, while we tend to bend the rules when it fits our desires and plans. That unlawful instinct is where love begins to collapse. The Ten Commandments include a lot of no's and some yeses, a lot of yeses, a lot of both, but those no's we have to realize are good for everybody. We can't ever forget that God's law is good. The prohibitions are good. The ten protect human life and promote human happiness, your happiness. The ten are meant to bless you, to bless you. Is that how you're hearing them? What's this series really about? You know, we, we've been at it for a while. It's coming near the end. What is it about? Folks, it's about love. Love. This series is about how to love. Every command helps you understand who Jesus is, how Jesus loves, and how you should love God and others like him. You can see in families, churches, and society at large that the more the ten are broken, the more heartache people experience. But the more the ten are honored, the more harmonious and happy are families, churches, and society at large. I think it's a challenging series because if you're listening closely and are sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, you're realizing how deficient your love is for God and others, and that's uncomfortable. But that's also God's gracious work in you to help you depend on him more and more, to find more comfort in the gospel. It's an opportunity. And the gospel you, or I'm sorry, the discomfort that you and I feel is good because it stretches our thinking. It deepens our realization of our sin and weakness. And what does it do? It pushes us to Christ Jesus, the Lord, our Savior, to rely on his righteousness and strength to compel us to true love. If you're rightly processing this series and, and you're responding with repentance and faith, God is growing you in love. He's growing love in you. And your growth, oh, your growth, brothers and sisters, is gonna bless others. It's gonna bless others. Your spouse Children, grandchildren, your church family, friends, co-workers, authorities, and others. The more you resist God's law and the Holy Spirit, the more you will frustrate, anger, and hurt others. So this series is teaching you to depend on Christ, to look to Christ, and how to be a greater blessing to others. Paul said in Romans 13, 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. All the regulations are there to help you love others. Love God and love others. This series is about love. And, and we have a debt to pay. Scripture says we have a debt to pay, an obligation. We owe others love. The law calls us to love. The gospel empowers us to love. 
And if you're struggling with this series, if you're struggling to understand what this series amounts to, here it is, I'll tell you. In simple words, Paul said in Romans 13, 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. We are learning how to love. We're in the what section? Guilt, grace, or gratitude section? We're in the gratitude section, folks, because we have received grace in Christ, because we know of our sin and misery, because we are forgiven by Christ. We're dwelling, this series is dwelling in the gratitude section, how to live out our faith in love for God. This is teaching us how to do it. We're in the gratitude. If you are dwelling in the guilt section, you're not listening closely enough. You're not listening with the right framework. You're going you're gonna to leave here totally upset. Uh, but when you are in the gratitude section, this becomes life-giving, exciting. This, became, this is what I really want to do. We're learning how to love. We're learning what to avoid in order to love. We are learning what to do in order to love. And here's a crucial point that you need to understand By his blood, by his grace, by his spirit, Christ has made us free men and women. Free. Free from the law of sin and death. We are alive and free in Christ to delight in the law and to do it for God's glory and everyone else's good. So Paul says in Galatians 5, 13 and 14, for you were called to freedom, brothers, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You and I were made free in Christ, not so that we can use our freedom to love and serve ourselves, but that we can love and serve one another. The gospel makes us free. And the law teaches us how to use our freedom. Now, maybe you missed that. The gospel makes us free. The law teaches us how to use our freedom. This series on the Ten Commandments is a crash course on how you can use your freedom in Christ to love God and others more and more and more, which is your delight. We're learning together. I'm learning too. So then, what is the eighth really about? It's about doing no wrong to our neighbor. It's about loving our neighbor. It's about wanting and living for the good of our neighbor. And you shall not steal is easy to understand. There it is, all right? Don't steal stuff. But it's also easy to miss the depth of it, how deep this goes. Just like you shall not murder, um, it's, it's easy to miss the, the many related issues to stealing. It's easy to miss that. You're probably, you probably don't consider yourself a thief. I mean, that's probably, hi, I'm Jonathan. I'm, I'm a thief, a crook, and a cheat. That's probably not how we self-identify Um, So maybe we need to go a little bit deeper because the deeper we wade into the waters of the eighth, the more we realize how much of a thief at heart we truly are. This command is not only for the Bonnie and Clydes. It's for God's people who are recovering thieves. 
redeemed, repentant, and recovering thieves. Here's what the eighth is generally about. The late Geneva College professor J.G. Voss said this of the eighth, quote, the general scope of the eighth commandment is respect for the sanctity of property. Just as the sixth enjoys respect, enjoins respect for the sanctity of life, and the seventh, respect for the sanctity of sex. End quote. The, the heart of the eighth is loving our neighbor by esteeming, honoring, and regarding his personal property, or we could say, what is rightfully his. Additionally, it's about meeting our neighbor's needs with our generosity, giving to our neighbors. As is customary for this series, this should be familiar to us by now, we first look at what the, the commandments are telling us not to do. This is what we need to put off. This is what we need to put to death. That's first. And then second, we look at what we should do, what we should put on, uh, how to positively do it. So today clarifies for us what we need to avoid in order to truly love God and others. Today is about what we must lovingly put off in order to glorify God and love others. And I want you to hear Westminster Larger Catechism 142. It explains the eighth, what the eighth forbids, and it takes us deeper into the eighth. And it's, it's long, but I just, want to, I just want to put it out there, and then we'll break up into, into some of the specifics. But this covers some major ground of what's included in the eighth. The sins forbidden in the Eighth Commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, so that would be next time, neglecting those, are theft, robbery, man-stealing, and receiving anything that is stolen, fraudulent dealing, false weights and measures, removing property markers, injustice and unfaithfulness in contracts between man and man, or in matters of trust, oppression, extortion, usury, bribery, frivolous lawsuits, unjust confinement, and forced migration or genocide, gaining a monopoly on commodities to enhance the price, unlawful callings, and all other unjust or sinful ways of taking or withholding from our neighbor what belongs to him, or of enriching ourselves, covetousness, inordinate prizing and affection for worldly goods, distrustful and distracting cares and studies in getting, keeping, and using them, Envying of the property of others, as likewise idleness, extravagance, wasteful gaming, and all other ways by which we do unnecessarily risk our own outward estate and defrauding others of the due use and comfort of the estate which God has given us. Whew. For the good of humanity, the eighth forbids more than sins of the hands. It includes, as the other commandments do, the sins of the heart. Sins like deception, covetousness, envy, lust, and discontentment. Now, I'm not preaching the Heidelberg Catechism. I'm preaching the commandments, which is the word of God, the holy word of God. But the Heidelberg is a great teaching tool, as I was telling you uh, kids in class today. It's a, it's a helpful teaching tool, a learning tool, to make God's word clearer. Heidelberg 110 is teaching us what does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment. That's what we're trying to understand when we hear, you shall not steal. And this is a helpful answer. It asks that in order to teach us what God's word says. And it answers, God forbids not only outright theft and robbery, 
but also such wicked schemes and devices as false weights and measures, deceptive merchandising, counterfeit money and usury. We must not defraud our neighbor in any way, whether by force or by show of right. In addition, God forbids all greed and all abuse or squandering of his gifts. We're talking here, folks, about a lot more than shoplifting. A whole lot more. We're also talking about the desires of the heart. So let's unpack a few characteristics of a thief. So let's understand what God is lovingly leading us, his people, away from. A thief is unloving. No thief ever loved those that he stole from. Leviticus 19 verse 18 says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. And a few verses before that, God says this, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him, the wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Now those prohibitions They promote love for others, but a thief ignores them and steals, defrauds, deceives, oppresses, and withholds because he thinks his selfish uh, desires are more important than his neighbor's good. And that's the problem. A thief is unloving. A thief is discontent. True contentment rejoices in God's provision for self and for others. The eighth requires that we rejoice in God's provision for ourselves, God's provision for others. We're rejoicing in God. Contentment frees us to do that, to rejoice when others prosper. A thief sees what others have, and because of his discontentment with what God has chosen to give him, he wants to take from others in order to have more. I would argue that stealing is in part driven by resentment toward God's providence. If God gives us little but gives someone else a whole lot, we can get upset and discontentment can then drive us to covetousness, envy, deceit, cheating, and stealing. And like Robin Hood, we can justify our theft in many seemingly noble ways. If a school student is discontent with the intellect that God has given her and also unwilling to work hard, she may cheat and get the answers from a friend. See, she doesn't trust God's providence and isn't content earning the grade commensurate to her intellect and hard work, so she steals the work that actually belongs to her neighbor. A thief is discontent. A thief is dishonest. A thief gains by deceit. It's interesting, the Hebrew word for steal is used in Genesis 31 to describe Jacob tricking Laban. Um, A thief is willing to trick others in order to get ahead. Stealing involves deception, trickery, stealth. Deuteronomy 25 verses 13 through 16 explains that weight used in measurement, must be accurate and fair, that you don't have two different kinds of weights. So people use scales, all right, to measure out grain or or, or whatever it was. So maybe their one-pound weight was actually, you know, some, some other number, like, you know, less or something, so the customer is getting more, 
And so the customer is cheated even just a little bit. That's deception. And God's law demands that we are entirely fair all the time. Never shady, never trying to pull one over on anyone, never disreputable, always fair. So when we go, Facebook Marketplace is great. I bought a Christmas tree. We have two, one uh, white lights upstairs, and then we call it the gaudy tree, which is the new one I got for 10 bucks down in the basement from a lady in Lidditz. Thank you, lady. It's a great tree. Colored trees, it's gaudy, it's great. So when you sell things on Facebook, Marketplace or, or Craigslist or someone stops by, you put it out front, we must not desire to withhold certain information in order to get that little bit more of a price, a higher price. When someone pays for a pound, we should not give them 15 ounces. Um, Never trying to pull one over. Exaggeration in advertising is unloving and wrong. Have you heard of the realistic Teddy Dog Lucky? Have you heard of that? Raise your hand if you've heard of that. Just one, one other person. Two people that are from my family? You gotta look this up, folks. It's, it is crazy, but the advertisement shows this adorable little puppy. I mean, cute, cute thing that looks exactly like a real dog. And you're like, oh my goodness, let's buy this thing for like 30 bucks, 20, I don't know what it is. And the pictures look like a real dog as well, and that's because it is a real dog in the advertisement. When you get the actual thing, it, uh, it's this stuffed animal that is pathetically underwhelming. I mean, not like what you, what you look like in the, or what, what the advertisement shows. It's a complete sham. That's unloving to those who got scammed by this who thought they were getting one thing but got another. I think about celebrity endorsements. Do they really love the products that they're endorsing? Are they being honest or do they just want a big fat paycheck? In 1986, the the Beef Industry Council, I guess that's a thing, paid actress Sybil Shepherd, if you remember that name, to promote beef with this tagline, real food for real people. I agree, I guess. It was a $30 million ad campaign. And then in an interview, Sybil said she tried to stay away from red meat. So to disingenuously endorse something that you're not really excited about in order to entice people to buy it is a form of theft. A thief is dishonest. A thief is greedy. Greed motivates theft. If we always lust for more and more is our end goal, we will hurt others to get more. We'll crush them and trample on them to get what we want. Greed puts personal gain above loving others. Psalm 10 verse 3 says, The one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Someone who curses and renounces the Lord is not interested in loving the Lord and others. Not interested in that. Proverbs 1 verse 19 is interesting. It talks about these violent and bloodthirsty men seeking to kill in order to obtain. It says, such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Well, they say American runs on Duncan. Oppression runs on greed. Slave trading runs on greed Unfair treatment of employees, false advertising, organized crime, corporate corruption, and gambling all run on greed. 
Casinos and lotteries attract greedy hearts and then exploit them. They exploit people. The, the gains are at great personal expense uh, for the people that are, are gambling. The gambling industry is not regulated by love. It's regulated by greed. Greed allows us to put aside our neighbor's best interest and to pursue our own gain. On our trip, stopped in at some convenience store or something, and I watched a man insert a $20 bill into a, a machine, a lottery card machine, and he took it over and he scratched it. And then he walked back over and he put in another 20 and he scratched it. And then he went back over and put in another 20 and he scratched it. I, I went to the bathroom, this is right outside the bathroom, and I came out, he was still scratching. And so while I was in the bathroom, Chris also noticed this guy uh, that he had purchased more cards while I was in the bathroom, and he had a wad of money. When we were walking out, I saw him have a wad of money, and he just kept gambling it away. And I think he was still at it when we, when we left. Now, why would that man take his hard-earned money, I suppose, and exchange it for cardboard that he's going to throw away? How is his compulsive behavior impacting his family and friends? You don't see that when you're inserting the 20. What compels the hand to insert the $20 or place that bet? What's compelling one to do that? What's at the heart of that? Proverbs 16, verse 8, aligns with the 8. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Those who have earned it fairly can sleep at night. A thief is greedy. A thief is stingy. Scripture says a lot about being generous, being tight-fisted or miserly or parsimonious is a form of stealing. The law promotes uh, generosity, so stinginess is, is therefore unloving. You owe your neighbor love and generosity, and to not grant them what the law demands is to be a thief. Jesus said, the laborer deserves his food, and the laborer deserves his wages. And the Bible also talks about injustice. When a stingy employer underpays his employees, it's a form of theft. As is an employee demanding wages beyond the work and value that they provide. A laborer deserves fair pay, and God will judge inequity or stinginess. Are we overly critical so that we can find a way to underpay? Do we withhold generous tips? Do we abuse return policies? Proverbs 11 says, another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. And the people curse him who holds back grain. Stinginess is unloving and upsets people, hurts people. 1 John 3, 17 says, but if anyone, and this is for us, church, this is for Christians, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That's a serious question to, to ponder. A stingy heart is an unloving heart. A thief is stingy. A thief is wasteful. Has there ever been a more wasteful people, a more wasteful nation than the United States in all of human history? Likely not. 
Why is wastefulness stealing? Because wastefulness is bad stewardship. God gives us so much, and then to waste it, well, that's dishonoring God, laborers, time, hard work, the poor. I read that, quote, each year, 108 billion pounds of food is wasted in the United States. That equates to more than $161 billion worth of food thrown away each year. Shockingly, nearly 40% of all food in America is wasted, end quote. What about the poor of the world? Our wastefulness is linked to our immoderation and ingratitude. One thing I admire about Native Americans, when I was a kid, man, Native Americans, their culture, bow and arrow, hunting and all that stuff, gathering, it was great. I loved the dress, I loved the thing, all of it, loved it. And what impressed me is their resourcefulness. How they used every last thing. If they took an animal's life, they used it for the benefit of themselves, the people. Little went to, to waste when they killed animals, gathered, or farmed. J.G. Voss commented, quote, even if there is plenty more available, it is wrong to waste anything that will sustain or enrich human life or that has cost natural resources and human effort to produce, end quote. Ah, who cares? I got plenty more laying around. That's theft. A disregard of the time and the work and the effort of others. Wastefulness does not honor God. And then the flip side, isn't it so cool when you see the resourcefulness of people? How they'll take something that people thought, oh, that's trash. They'll take that and then work it into something amazing that people want. It's amazing. I love to see it. We all love to see that. Why? Why do we love that? Because unnecessary waste dishonors God. A thief is wasteful. A thief is lazy. A thief doesn't want to work hard. It is a form of stealing to desire to benefit from public good without contributing anything. Some government programs encourage this. Even wanting the paycheck without carrying your fare of, of the workload is stealing. Laziness hurts people. Laziness frustrates people. It frustrates employers. It unnecessarily burdens spouses and children. It encumbers the government. So they take more money, unjustly, unfairly. And God takes laziness seriously. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's clear. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Wow. When I was younger, uh, my parents are here, family, relatives, you guys remember probably. But when I was younger, I looked for ways to avoid work. How can I get out of work? And as I think about that now and I reflect back on my, my life, I realize I was just refusing to love others. That's what that was about. I was thinking more about myself than about others. I could have been a blessing. I could have helped out. My parents wouldn't have been as stressed. So I miss many opportunities to love, and hopefully I'm growing up. I was, I was stealing. God gave me gifts, and to fail to use my gifts that he has given me to benefit others because I want ease, because I want comfort, is breaking the eighth. I still struggle with this. A thief is lazy. 
A thief is self-indulgent. This goes without saying. Self-indulgence is not the chief end of man. Unless we're talking about self-indulgence in God, a, a, a thief thinks of his own desires and does unlawful things to gratify them. She sees what is not heard, uh, what is not hers, and she wants to indulge, and so she takes. As Christians, we ought to evaluate our desires. What do we want, and why do we want what we want? Now, I don't know that we often think about how self-indulgence and excess impact others around us. God blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others. God blesses us so we can be a blessing to others. To hoard and to stockpile and to indulge, to satisfy self is to ignore at least the cries of the poor. We are the wealthiest nation of history and to use our wealth for self-indulgence is to misuse our wealth and to miss out on the incredible blessings of generosity. It is better to give than to receive. That's biblical truth. We ought to believe that. But see, a thief assumes it's better to take than to give. A thief is self-indulgent. A thief is inhospitable. Now, hospitality, we can, get this, we can get this backwards a little bit, but primarily it's kindness to strangers, uh, especially Christian strangers. If we refuse to be hospitable to those who are in need, we violate the eighth. If we refuse to be hospitable to those in need, we are in a way stealing. There are people that God wants us to minister to. There are resources that God gives us to be a blessing to others, to give, to love when they can't love or give in return. And if we say no and we don't do it, it is a form of breaking the eighth. If we are focused on our own desire, indulgences, comfort, we will miss opportunities to love and the law calls us to love. Did you know that scripture, God in scripture, commands hospitality? It's not a choice. Like Some people have gifts, but it is a command. Hospitality is law, according to Scripture. Hebrews 13, verse 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. That's law. 1 Peter 4, 9 adds, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That's law. And as spirit-filled believers, we must do this with gratitude because we have received the grace of Christ. We've received so much from him, we now wanna give and be hospitable. Withholding hospitality when it is within our means to give and to love is to break the eighth, a thief is inhospitable. Now there's more to the eighth, but here's one more characteristic of a thief that I'll draw attention to. A thief is blasphemous. The more I study the 10 commandments, the more I realize how connected all the commandments are with each other. Some of them are commandments inside of other commandments. There's so much overlap, and Scripture says, as one example, covetousness is idolatry. So the 10th commandment overlaps with the first commandment. And it's the same with others. Stealing actually profanes the name of God. The eighth and the third overlap. Proverbs 30, verse 9 says, Lest I be fool and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. God's name is holy. God's law is holy. 
to break God's law is to profane God's great and holy name. We honor God's name when we obey God's law of love. Imagine, folks, what unbelievers think when they see Christians stealing, cheating, underpaying, plagiarizing, being inhospitable. What do they think? It brings reproach to the name of our God. In Romans 2, Paul confronts Jewish hypocrisy. He said, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? And then he added, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The Jews who had God's law, who preached God's law, broke God's law, and Gentile unbelievers blasphemed God because of their hypocrisy. For those who love God's law to steal and cheat and defraud and deceive in order to get ahead brings reproach to the holy name, the great name of God. A thief is blasphemous. Now, before I land here, I want to give you an extra apologetic point for free. All right? Some people argue that the Bible gets slavery wrong, that it doesn't condemn slavery. They're they're making this argument in public spaces, some prominent people, and they use this angle, interestingly, to argue that if the Bible gets slavery wrong, then it also gets sexual ethics wrong, from which they conclude sexual immorality is acceptable. You see where they're going with that? Um, That's a huge problem, logically. That does not hold up. The Bible does condemn slavery. The Eighth Commandment condemns slavery. Uh, Though the question of indentured servitude is difficult, uh, Israel enslaving prisoners of war, that brings up interesting questions, I understand. To kidnap people and to sell them into slavery is theft and directly condemned in Scripture. Exodus 21 verse 16 makes it stunningly clear, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. The the law condemns slave trading and condemns slave traders. Deuteronomy 24 7 calls slave trading evil. 1 Timothy 1.10 repudiates enslavers which are slave traders. That's what that means. Slave traders, people, dealers who kidnap people and take them and sell them into slavery. Many, sadly, many 18th and 19th century American Christians, including many reformed Christians, supported the African slave trade. Reprehensible. They got the Eighth Commandment horrifically wrong, and it devastated many, many people for years. We have to be clear, folks, about where stealing ends. If we get that, we'll see the goodness of the law. Where does it end? Why not steal? Where does the path of theft lead? Proverbs 9, 17 through 18 says, Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Look, it's, it, no doubt theft is exciting, all right? There's a certain thrill with it. I got away with it. I took it. It's mine now. You know, movies like Ocean's Eleven make Breaking the Eighth look really glamorous, even somewhat justified because Terry Benedict was such a jerk. 
So you end up rooting for the bad guys. And Terry was also a bad guy. Gambling industry, there you have it. Whole mess. But be clear about this. Theft leads to death. All thieves deserve death and God's condemnation because all forms of theft among, uh, amount to rebellion against God. 1 Corinthians 6.10, it says that thieves will not inherit the kingdom of God. Stealing in all of its forms is an eternally condemning sin. Now, my title might perplex you. Believing and not thieving. It's what you want to be. It's where you want to be. It's where you need to be. You want to be, need to be, believing and not thieving. The law exposes our thievery for what it is. It's sin. We, we are all guilty in various ways. And the gospel extends Christ to us. And God calls us to believe. And as we believe and as we depend on Christ, who gives us sufficient grace and sufficient strength, and we, we then do not thieve. We lose a desire for it. Faith in Christ, the perfect one, is the antidote to stealing. God sovereignly makes us believing and not thieving in Christ. Last point, trusting Christ and loving others. If you have ever been unloving, discontent, dishonest, greedy, stingy, wasteful, lazy, self-indulgent, inhospitable, and blasphemous, uh, you've broken the eighth. You've broken the eighth. And trusting in Christ alone will lead you to love others more deeply. Turning to Christ transforms the heart. Through faith, God gives you Christ and the love of Christ, which compels you to turn from those things in order to love others. So my fellow thieves, I have really, really good news for you today. Jesus is the exact opposite of these things. That's who he is Jesus is perfectly loving, perfectly content, honest, big-hearted, generous, resourceful, hardworking, self-sacrificing, hospitable, and worshipful. Jesus, the righteous, welcomes thieves to himself to generously give them, pour up, lavish on them mercy and grace and compassion and love and pardon and blessing Jesus transforms thieves by his power and he does so for God's glory. And so that his projects, his workmanship, so that they live to love others. When you receive Christ by true faith, the desire to steal begins to die in you and the desire to love others and to work hard and to be generous and hospitable and, and like things that, that just becomes so much more attractive in the delight of your heart because of who Christ is making you. We are alive in Christ, brothers and sisters. And so Christ is using the law and the gospel to conform you to himself. Why? Because he loves you. The Holy Spirit of Christ makes sinners believing and not thieving. Faith in Christ compels you to not steal, but to instead work hard and to give to others. What kind of heart does Jesus have toward thieves like you and me? What's his heart? I'll show you. When Jesus Christ was crucified, he hung on the cross between two criminals, two robbers or thieves. They both reviled Jesus coming after him in their moment of death, but the grace of God came to one of the thieves 
In his dying hour, God sovereignly changed that thief's heart. And as the other thief was railing against Jesus, the one thief rebukes the other saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. This thief didn't self-justify. This thief admitted his own wrongdoing and the just penalty of the law. This thief recognized God's just wrath against sin. He knew that his wicked deeds deserved God's judgment. This thief also realized the righteousness and innocence of Christ. And in a simple act of faith and in the last breathing moments of his life, this thief trusted. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He believed that Jesus was king. He believed that Jesus was merciful and Jesus was gracious and Jesus is kind and Jesus is generous to the sinful, to the guilty and to the brokenhearted. And Jesus gave the dying thief words of salvation and words of comfort. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. If you think that you have met the demand of the eighth, you're not like the thief on the cross. You must admit you are a thief and deserve God's righteous judgment. You can't self-justify and be saved. You must continually admit your wrongdoing to God. You must continually recognize that you deserve death for your wrongful deeds, but you must continually receive the precious righteousness and innocence of Jesus Christ by faith and find comfort in his royal identity, in his eternal kingdom, in his benevolence toward you. If you are to be comforted by the gospel, over and over again, and we need that in this, as we limp through this life, you too must receive the words of the king by true faith. Truly, I say to you, the thief that I have redeemed by my blood. One day, you will be with me in paradise. Those are words of comfort for redeemed, repentant, and recovering thieves. Those are words of salvation and assurance to the poor in spirit, the beat down, the brokenhearted, those who look back over their life and recognize what a mess it was at sometimes. The king promises you, dear church, the kingdom where thieves will be made entirely loving. We don't steal our way there. Christ purchases it and gives it to us as a gift. Don't look to the law for comfort. Look to Christ. Yes, the law helps you love. Yes, we need it. Yes, it's good. Yes, it's necessary. But Christ alone comforts the soul and compels to love. Look to Christ. 